Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. days ago, a truck caught fire under a Philadelphia overpass, shutting down the critical I-95 artery that tens of thousands of Philadelphians need to use every day. The governor came out this morning saying it could take, quote, months to fix. In fact, he didn't give any particular timeline. They'll get to it when they get to it. Contrast this with Florida, where Governor DeSantis rebuilt an entire causeway over ocean, no less, in 15 days after Hurricane Ian washed it away last year. Or, while we're at it, compared to Fukuoka, Japan, where a massive sinkhole opened up right in the middle of a city about the size of Philadelphia. It was 100 feet wide, 50 feet deep, that's five stories, leaving pipes and cables hanging out like spaghetti. That one took two days. To fix. As the Guardian put it, blink and you'll miss it. What's the difference? The U.S. has modern equipment and trained road crews just like Japan. Pennsylvania surely has the same bridge technology as Florida. Ah, but there is a big difference. Government spending. Ironically, however, the more the government spends, the worse it does. For example, Pennsylvania's estate spends almost twice as much as Florida, $8,000 per person versus $4,300. The U.S. as a country spends almost three times more than Japan. That's $19,000 per person versus $6,500 in Japan. And it's way past bridges, of course. Anybody who's driven in high-tax places like New York or L.A. can see how bad the roads are. In fact, how bad public services are in general, picking up trash, removing graffiti, maintaining fences or water fountains, of course, prosecuting or even investigating crimes. In other words, a government that tries to do everything empirically does everything badly. What could square this circle? One possibility is that the more money government has, the more they focus on distractions, throwing billions of dollars and thousands of bureaucrats at whatever social justice quest their army of activists are demanding this week. The problem is all those distractions grow like a cancer eating away at the essentials. After all, if you want to make a name for yourself in, say, New York City politics, you are not joining the roads department or the water department. You are joining the equity, the social justice groups. That is where the growth is. It's where the future is. That's where the budget is. In other words, every new push in government power creates a permanent parasite siphoning away the money that used to go to the essentials. A small government, on the other hand, focuses on the things that matter. Roads and bridges, electricity that doesn't go out, water you can drink. And voters, in turn, grade their elected representatives, not on what activist flags they're hanging this week, but on whether they are actually competent at running the place. Given runaway government spending, this problem will only get worse. Misery in the midst of plenty as our essential services progressively go third world, even as our governments piss away fresh trillions, in fact, specifically because they piss away fresh trillions. Startups are dying in droves in a, quote, mass extinction event as 10 years of zero interest rates now adds mass bankruptcies to the inflation that, according to fresh numbers only this morning, is not going anywhere. 
The Wall Street Journal ran an article last week going through the grim numbers in startup land with soaring shutdowns, quote, fire sales and hard pivots, meaning the business failed. So they're trying something else to use up the money. In short, after the Fed intentionally hiked interest rates last year to crush the economy, both bank loans and venture capital essentially dried up. This is now driving tens of thousands of small businesses to the wall, or as the journal dryly put it, quote, business models that worked when cash was cheap are unsustainable now. By the way, this is a key mechanism in the business cycle model in Austrian economics that the main driver of recessions is the boom-bust cycle, where cheap money fuels a bunch of unsustainable businesses called malinvestments, and then all of that cheap money fuels inflation, which drives the Fed or the central bank to fight it with rate hikes. The rate hikes take away the punch bowl of the cheap money, causing those malinvestments to go bust in droves. So rather than businesses occasionally going under one by one, like in a healthy economy, the failures cluster around those interest rate hikes, which were only necessary because of the previous zero interest rates. So at the moment, we are in the middle of an epic hike cycle after, of course, 10 years of zero rates to pay for. So the journal's, quote, mass extinction is textbook Austrian business cycle theory. It is nice to see mainstream talking about the trees, although perhaps someday they'll learn the theory. Now, in raw numbers, VCA activity is now down two-thirds in just over a year to just $37 billion. The journal mentions one VC firm where barely half of their original portfolio companies are still around. The rest already went bust. As an industry, the internal rate of return for venture capital firms is now negative 7%. So they are losing 7 cents on every dollar they invest. As one VC put it, quote, it's like the entire industry went out drinking and is now suffering the consequences. Yes, it is amazing what cheap money does to you. One prominent failure was robotic pizza maker Zoom, which went from $2.25 billion to being sold for scrap. By the way, when I used to teach malinvestment in class, I would use the absurd example of a restaurant built in a whale's mouth as an unsustainable business. I might now have to revise that to a $2.25 billion robot pizza guy. So what's next? There are still a lot of zombie startups sitting on leftover money. Almost $350 billion was raised in 2021 alone, and they're still running through it, meaning we have only seen the beginning. Every month that passes, more and more startups are going to get to the end of their rope, and they'll liquidate, fire employees, exit their leases, and join that mass extinction off the cliff. How to stop it? Easy. Bring interest rates back to a reasonable number, say 2 or 3%, so the liquidations don't cluster all at once, which you could do if the federal government stopped pumping inflation with their deficits. As for stopping these endless cycles of inflation recession bailout, it's even easier. End the Fed and let markets, meaning let the people, set interest rates as they had for centuries. Of course, that is not happening anytime soon. Yesterday, Janet Yellen warned the American people that the U.S. dollar is doomed. Is the U.S. even trying to stop de-dollarization? Can it even stop it? Yesterday, Janet Yellen said some of the quiet parts out loud as the Treasury Secretary warned the American people 
should, quote, expect over time a steady decline in the dollar as the global reserve currency. In testimony before Congress, she was asked about threats to the dollar from the administration's unprecedented weaponization of the dollar as a political tool, most dramatically the seizure of the Russian central bank's sovereign dollars in hopes of sparking a bank crisis. It didn't work. Actually, our banks failed. Note, We didn't even do that during the Cold War because it breaks a sacred trust that the dollar will be there when you need it for all countries. Yellen first waved it off, saying countries targeted by sanctions are obviously going to avoid the dollar. By the way, they didn't used to do that because even prior countries need stable and liquid stores of value. Recall Iran's pallets of U.S. dollars. The questioner then noted that even friendly countries, including France and BRICS adjacent and petrodollar pillar, Saudi Arabia are avoiding the dollar, at which point Yellen admitted, yes, that's true. But she added that most countries are trapped. So tough luck. In her words, quote, there is no meaningful workaround to using the dollar for most countries. But what broke our corner of the Internet is what she said next, that she expects the dollar to continue losing reserve share since there is a, quote, natural tendency for a growing world to diversify. This is a striking level of historical ignorance from one of the two people tasked with safeguarding the dollar's reserve currency. After all, the world economy has, in fact, been growing for about 300 years since the Industrial Revolution. And through those 300 years, there was no natural tendency to diversify. In fact, there was a tendency to concentrate in a single reserve asset, first the British pound and then the American dollar. Why? Because reserve demand has nothing to do with growing or shrinking worlds. It is built on the currency's ability to store value and its liquidity or transaction costs. Shirley Yellen knows this. She has a PhD from Yale. She taught at Harvard. She's been both Fed chair and Treasury secretary. Indeed, she's married to a Nobel economist. In other words, she is lying. She knows there is no natural tendency to lose reserve currency. That's something you have to lose yourself. On the contrary, that natural tendency to concentrate is the whole point of having a reserve currency. In fact, it's the point she bragged about in the previous sentence about meaningful workarounds for all the weak countries that the U.S. can bully. China, of course, is doing everything it can to provide that, quote, meaningful workaround. While going by Yellen's speech, the U.S. is not going to do anything about it. Ever since I started these videos three months ago, I've been warning of threats to the dollar's reserve currency status. If this happens, the many trillions of spare dollars parked all around the world would come rushing home. That could set off double-digit inflation that could last for years. The dollar ultimately could lose half its value, which would mean a wrenching depression, the likes of which we have not seen in a century. At the moment, we are on the edge of a 1970s economy. If we lose reserve currency status, it could be closer to the 1930s, and the U.S. government doesn't seem too interested in stopping that. Yesterday, Jerome Powell admitted it isn't working and he's out of ideas. Now, don't get excited. He didn't resign. He just promised to do more of what hasn't worked. In their every six-week rates meeting, the Fed held rates steady as expected. But the big news was Jerome Powell warning that inflation is stuck, confounded that inflation, quote, has not reacted much to our existing rate hikes. We're going to have to keep at it. In other words, pause, then more pain. By the way, I predicted this in the newsletter. 
Now, Powell's white flag came after the previous day's CPI number showed headline inflation easing, but core CPI, excluding food and energy, that's the one the Fed takes as the accurate one, stuck around 5% for, at this point, six months in a row. Even at the peak months of our recent inflation in 2022, core bounced around 6%. Now, 15 hikes later, we're stuck at 5 Every central banker knows the longer inflation runs, the harder it is to get rid of. It's like a cancer. At this point, it could take years absent a catastrophic deflationary recession. Looking under the hood, while last month's headline CPI eased, food inflation actually accelerated, coming in at almost 7% on the year. Many would say it's much higher. These are just the government numbers. Everything else, X energy held steady at just over 5% year-on-year, but with some shockers in there. So shelter jumped to 8%, transportation jumped to 10%, goods prices, stuff you can drop on your foot, also accelerated. What brought headline down was that one single price energy, which dropped a whopping 3.6% on the month. That's about a one-third drop annualized, which is big. Why is energy plunging when everything else is going up? Because energy is a classic recession indicator. When the economy fails, energy goes down. In fact, energy had a similar drop, 3.5% on the month, in March at the height of the banking crisis. By the way, in the 2008 financial crisis, energy absolutely plunged, going from almost 150 to just over $25. In other words, the entire inflation is over narrative is energy. And energy is one of the surest signs of a slowing economy. When the economy is doing well, it soaks up energy. The factories are humming, stores and offices are packed, consumers shop more and they go on vacation. When the economy is tanking, energy plunges. And keep in mind, energy is falling despite Joe Biden's war on domestic energy, which has brought domestic production down over 4 million barrels, that's roughly a third, compared to Trump's pre-COVID trend that normally should have boosted energy because there's less of the stuff. And yet here we are. So inflation is stuck. Headline is just the recession talking. And that's after the most aggressive rate hikes in 50 years since Paul Volcker in the 1970s. So what is next? The Fed is signaling a brief pause and then yet more hikes to crash jobs, banks and real estate, all while inflation keeps running down American families who have already lost over $7,000 in income to inflation. Now that Congress has approved inflationary deficits through 2026, there is no white knight coming. It is on to 1970s stagflation, this time with no Paul Volcker to save the day. A couple days ago, Jerome Powell admitted that after 14 rate hikes, inflation is not going away. New Treasury data is showing why. After a brief break during the debt ceiling play fight, the federal government is back to spending like a banker in a strip club. My colleague E.J. Antoni shared a couple threads that showed our country is driving off a fiscal cliff that unless they manage to catastrophically crash the economy, will keep inflation going for years to come. First up, new Treasury data says interest on the debt soared to $61 billion in May. That's an annualized $730 billion, almost $500 per month per household in federal debt service alone. In fact, we are now paying more in interest than veterans, education, and transportation combined. Interest on old debt is now over a quarter 
of the federal deficit. So we're borrowing more just to pay interest on what we've already borrowed. And it's getting worse fast. So far in 2023, the deficit is 2.7 times higher than it was this time last year. And it is going to keep getting worse as old low rate debt rolls off and is replaced by much higher rate debt. Keep in mind, a year ago, treasuries were yielding 2.9%, meaning they could borrow $100 and pay $2.90 in interest. Those rates are now 5.3%, meaning that interest goes from $2.90 to $5.30, almost double. Of course, it is all funny money to them. They'll just run bigger and bigger deficits, which the Fed will dutifully finance. That is the inflationist MMT mantra. Print like there's no tomorrow because tomorrow you'll just print some more. The problem is regular Americans do not have basement money printers. So all those new dollars cause inflation that destroys their paychecks, their pensions, their life savings. Meanwhile, anything you bought on credit, a vacation, a new deck, an adjustable mortgage, are all digging you deeper into a hole. Since Biden took office, the average American family now earns $5,600 less. It's $500 per month. Keep in mind, that's just with official inflation. If true inflation is higher, it is much worse. You got hit even harder if you tried to protect yourself from inflation by buying a house. The monthly payment on a house has now doubled since Biden, adding another 12000 per year or 350000 over the course of a typical 30-year mortgage. That makes it much harder for young families to even get started. And all that is not even counting the extra $11 trillion of debt that Americans owe since Joe Biden took over, not least from additional federal debt, along with credit cards and millions now buying groceries on installment. That new debt comes to $85,000 per family. In other words, for every $1 raise that Americans got over these past two years, and which Biden keeps bragging about, they lost $2.5 in what they can actually buy, and they got hit with almost $15 in additional debt. Our economy is rapidly turning into a piggy bank for federal deficits as working families are falling off the treadmill for the singular goal of enabling eye-watering levels of federal spending. So far, both parties seem content to keep it going over and over, trillion by trillion, until it breaks. A growing chorus is warning the next stage in the bank crisis could be freezing your bank account to save dying banks. As Luke Groman put it, that they, quote, chain the theater doors shut before lighting it on fire. A few weeks ago, flamboyant money manager Hugh Hendry was on Bloomberg warning that continuing floods of money out of bank deposits and into money markets could drive the Treasury and the Fed to lock people into their banks, adding, quote, I would recommend you panic. Meanwhile, Isabella Kaminska, a former editor of the Financial Times, tweeted that since we've now discovered that banks apparently don't hedge interest rate risk at all, which is now killing them, regulators may conclude that the only way to stabilize the banking system is to bring back bank frictions. Frictions here meaning make it difficult or impossible to withdraw your money. Kaminska predicts, quote, the next big thing in fintech will no doubt be friction tech or smart liquidity or whatever dumb thing they decide to rebrand lockups as. 
The background here is that since March, the Fed has become obsessed with such friction, putting out paper after paper worrying how fast bank runs have become. What took weeks, even in 2008, now takes days or even hours. The subtext is that the Fed would very much like to slow down or stop withdrawals. Saul Omarova, who was a Biden nominee as a top bank regulator, despite being a Marxist, even advocated setting up direct individual accounts at the Fed, which would effectively nationalize the entire U.S. banking system. Of course, with a CBDC, it would all be push and push button easy to chain the theater. Freezing assets, even seizing assets, can be done with surgical precision in real time. In fact, the Fed specifically cited bank run risk in their paper on CBDCs last year. But even our existing banking system has all these powers, thanks to the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970 and the infamous Patriot Act, which delivered full ability to control where your money goes or does not go. Canada displayed that power last year, locking hundreds of accounts for supporting peaceful protests. Our government has the exact same tools, and they could be deployed in a bank run. So what is next? Since the founding of the Fed, Americans have been used as a piggy bank to bail out the banking system over and over. We are currently in the middle of one mother of bailouts, consisting of trillions in deposit guarantees paired with cheap loans on hidden bank assets that lost value. The problem is that all those bailouts don't actually solve the problem, which is that depositors are fleeing 0.2% bank accounts and moving their money to 5% money markets. That literally removes the money from the bank, which forces them to sell those crap assets, which breaks the game. That means the only solution is to cut rates. In fact, to slash them towards 0.2%. This the Fed cannot do, since it knows inflation would soar, which would drive Congress to take it over. So the Fed is out of options, and the last man standing is you. Final point on de-dollarization, capital controls would obviously also hit foreigners, who would also be locked in, losing access to their dollars. A supposed global reserve asset that you cannot withdraw would obviously be catastrophic for the U.S. dollar's already draining reserve status. Markets are upping their bets that the Fed will finally achieve its dream, crash the economy, and make Americans eat cat food. A few days ago, Bloomberg reported that yield curve inversion is now approaching its March peak, itself the worst since the 2008 crisis. This means bond traders are upping their bets that, as Bloomberg put it, the Federal Reserve will steer the U.S. economy into recession. A separate Bloomberg poll found almost two-thirds of financial analysts expect a recession this year. The actual data, of course, agrees, with jobless claims rising to fresh highs. So what is the yield curve and why is it worth watching? The yield curve is a gold standard on Wall Street to predict recessions. It is pretty simple. Just draw a graph that traces out the interest rates on government bonds by length and connect the dots. So you've got three-month bonds, one-year bonds, five-year, all the way up to 30 years. What matters is the shape. A normal yield curve looks like a hill, starting at today's rates and then gradually rising. It's rising because longer bonds tie up your money for years, so investors want to get paid more. They want a higher rate. The problem is when the yield curve goes flat or even negative. This is saying that markets expect 
the Fed to cut rates, which Feds do when they expect a recession. If the curve is flat, for example, it's saying, yes, I need more money to to tie up my cash, but I also think rates are going to come down soon, so I'm going to lock in today's higher rates. The scariest shape, the one that keeps the gamblers on Wall Street up all night, is an inverted yield curve. That one is not a hill, it is a ditch, starting at today's rate, and then it's all downhill. That is one of the clearest signs in finance that a recession is coming. In fact, the inverted yield curve has predicted every recession going back to at least the 1970s, and it never lies, at least not in modern terms. If the curve inverts, you get a recession. Having said, it takes time for the actual recession to come because markets are trying to predict the future and the first data that scares the yield curve is usually a year or two before the actual recession. So where are we now? The yield curve went flat in March of 2022, right before the Fed started their very first hike. Then a few weeks later, when the Fed actually delivered that hike, the yield curve immediately went negative. That should have been a blazing siren to the Fed. If a single nudge off nearly a decade of zero rates sent the curve negative, it means the economy was a dead man walking. That the Fed should have treaded lightly, go easy, lest they break the thing. Of course, that's not what the Fed did, because they were desperate to cancel $6 trillion of inflation coming from federal spending without actually cutting the federal spending. So they ignored the curve, instead launching the most savage rate hikes in 50 years that have already canceled millions of open jobs, thousands of bankruptcies, and a fresh crop of failed banks with every quarterly earnings report. All that with the yield curve ticking away day by day, telling us we have not even seen the crash yet. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time.